Amen. How are we doing today? Great. It is a great day um, to be in the house of the Lord. We're really thankful for uh, all that God's doing. And, um, you know, when you have a situation where people are sensing the, the call and the leading of God, um, it does give you some encouragement to see that uh, this is what God wants for all of us. I mean, he may not call everybody into vocational ministry, but he's calling us all to adjust our life to his plan, his purpose, his will. And uh, that's going to mean different things for different people, um, but it is a challenge. It is probably the one of the biggest challenges that we face day to day is getting our minds wrestled back onto God's will. And so um, the Bible tells us that you and I do not naturally think biblically. You, you don't naturally, ordinarily, uh, according to your uh, nature or your upbringing or uh, your design, um, you don't tend to think biblically. The Bible actually says that you are at enmity with God in your mind, that, that your thought process is not God's thought process until you get it onto his plan and his purpose. And so in 2 Corinthians, it actually says this, says we, and this is 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. So Paul is telling the church that this is a battle for your, your mind, how you think, that you have to intentionally get to this place where you're willing to let God have his way in the way that you understand the world, yourself, him, uh, people, sin, eternity, hope, uh, all of it, that it's not just the normal thought process. And how we do that is we have to be aware that there is a battle, that we have an enemy that wants to continue to distract us from God's plan, his will, his word. And last week, what we were seeing from Genesis is that our enemy, Satan, that's, that's what Satan means. It means adversary. It means enemy. That his attack initially and I think predominantly is to distract us from the Word of God, to undermine it in our lives, to distract us from the nature and the character of God so that we don't look to Him, trust Him, depend on Him. And then from there, He'll distract us from uh, really our self um, having this undermining of our own identity, um, which is really the final battle that, that he has in a lot of people's lives is that once you start to doubt yourself, now you have no way to get back to uh, our sense of stability on God's word. And so people are so convoluted in how they understand their own nature that they're, they're confused, just completely confused as to what truth is, as to who people are, as to who they are themselves, as to their, their standing, their value, their purpose, their 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 destiny. Um, and so God is calling us to get back to the truth of his word, to understand who he is first and foremost, and then to understand who we are in light of that. Satan desires to undermine that in every turn. So what we're going to look at this week is how Satan is accusing. So Satan means enemy, devil means accuser. 
And the first thing that we see is that Satan accuses God to man. That's what we saw in Genesis. He accuses God to man, which means that um, he is telling humanity that you can't really trust God. And so right there, a lot of people have this uh, sense of insecurity about who God is. Once you choose to reject and deny what Satan is trying to do there, then you can get back to a dependence on God. But the next thing that he's going to do is he's going to undermine you in the sense of he's going to accuse you to God. Okay, So he's the accuser in both senses. He's going to accuse you to God. He's going to say to God, why would you continue to have grace on this person who continues to fail you over and over and over? And then undermine you and your own security to see that, well, man, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe what I think isn't right. Maybe what I'm following isn't working. And he has a lot of tactics like that. So let's look at how Satan operates in this sense, accusing man to God from the book of Job. And so as we look at this, let's stand and read God's word. Job 1, starting in verse 6. And uh, I just want to uh, warn you, I guess, in a, in a sense, that uh, we're, this, is not a, this is not a sermon about Job. This is a sermon uh, about Satan and how he works. Uh, so we'll kind of deal with a little bit of, of Job's story, but primarily we're looking to see how Satan operates here, okay? So this is what it says. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered to the Lord uh, and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Father, we... uh, give you praise, God. You are willing to reveal heavenly things to us, Lord. You're willing to reveal yourself, your, your work, your nature, your plan, your power. Uh, you're willing to uh, be patient, draw us close, speak to us, encourage us, um, strengthen us, and, and mature us, Lord, as we continue to uh, walk through life, trying to grasp truth and hold on to it and, and make it our foundation and uh, resist the enemy who, who so actively seeks to undermine you and undermine us. Lord, he's, he's the enemy of you. He's the enemy of mankind. He's the enemy of your people. Um, we thank you, God, that your word tells us clearly He's just a creature. He, he, his power is limited. Um, his time is limited. Um, we thank you that your power is greater and your power is in us, Lord, that you say 
that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, that uh, each and every believer who possesses the transformation of the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ is greater, stronger, positioned to be more powerful. But we have to be aware. We have to have our eyes open. And so, Father, help us to uh, keep our eyes open and focused on you, uh, that we might stand in the evil day, Lord, that we might stand and be firm and be confident and be more than conquerors through Christ. And as we do that, Lord, we not only are we rescuing ourselves, but uh, many around us, Lord, who need to see Christ at work in us. So help us to cling to the truth, to speak it, to live it, uh, to proclaim it in a way that um, resounds in our community, in our schools, workplaces, our homes, through our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Job, I want to just give you a really quick little picture of the book of Job. Uh, one of the oldest books in the Bible, uh, we believe, Job himself was a contemporary with the patriarchs, okay? So that means that he lived around the time of Abraham, um, and so that would put him five, six hundred years or so uh, prior to Moses, prior to the Exodus. Um, what I believe, and, and not everybody agrees with this, so take it or leave it, but uh, I believe that Moses probably wrote Job that as the, uh, the one, the prophet that God had spoken to about uh, all the things that were happening in the world from the time of creation to his own time, uh, that this story was embedded in that whole story. But it's such an important message about who God is and who we are that it, it was a separate message. And so here's what you understand about Job. As a very early book, no matter who wrote it, no matter what you understand about when it came into uh, you know, the people of God's or Israel's possession, it was a very early account. And the moral of the story is very clear, which is that there is suffering in the world. How do we understand suffering, pain, and disaster in light of our relationship with God? Who is God and how does it relate to why we suffer? Okay, And so that question posed and answered, really, through this story, about 4,000 years ago, even today, is still a looming question. Would you agree? When people um, try to understand the goodness of God and, and the nature of God and the will of God and the power of God and who He is and why He does what He does and why He doesn't do certain things, many times the question comes back to, why suffering? Why pain? And why, in, in, in one particular sense, Jesus answers this question too, um, why do good people suffer? And the answer to the why good people suffer um, kind of comes back to this one issue, which is, do you remember? He says, no one is good. He, uh, he's actually called a good teacher, and uh, he says, why do you call me good? You He's, he's basically saying, you have this idea that people are basically good, 
and that they don't deserve to suffer and that somehow we've connected our situation, our circumstance in life with our relationship with God and somehow those two things must always be the same. And he says, you got to separate those two things out. So here's what's happening in Job is that we're starting to get a picture of how Satan uses pain and suffering to undermine uh, our confidence in God. Okay, everyone is going to have situations throughout their life, sometimes major, sometimes minor, sometimes ongoing, sometimes long periods, sometimes short periods of suffering, pain, uh, trouble, turmoil, whatever you want to call it, tribulation. We're going to have that. In fact, Jesus says he guarantees in this world, you remember, in this world, you will have what? Trouble. But take heart because I have overcome the world. So here's what's happening in Job. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Now, does God know where Satan has come from? Okay, so he poses the question, not because God doesn't know, but because Satan has to give an account. And this is an important theological issue that God knows your life, he knows your, your thoughts, he knows your activities, he knows your intentions, he knows your emotions, he knows everything that's coming out of your life, he knows it all, and yet he says that you will one day give an account. You will stand before the Lord and you will give an account to him, and you will have to be aware of the reality that you are responsible to him. So he's telling us up front all the time that even though God knows everything, he still wants you to know that you're responsible to him to share that this is how I lived my life. This is what I did. This is what I thought. And you're thinking, how many of you are, are finding that your memory isn't as good as it used to be? You know, it's interesting that I, sometimes I worry about that. Like, I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going to forget a bunch of stuff. Um, that's not going to be a problem. You're going to have instant recall of everything in your life, and you're going to be able to share it clearly. But God does this with Satan. He says, where have you been? Because Satan's going to give an account. But here's what's the other interesting thing. He says, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Does it sound like an interesting phrase? Like that's just kind of a strange or unique way for, for Satan to tell God where he's been. He's been roaming the earth. And here's what he means by that. He's been scouring the earth, looking for someone to devour. That's what Peter says about Satan. He's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is roaming the earth, going up and down in it, looking for somebody whose faith is weak so that he can attack them and undermine their faith and keep them locked away in sin. He wants to weaken those who are in sin. And here's why I say that is because uh, there's a, uh, a passage in 2 Chronicles 16 that uses a very similar phrase to talk about someone else whose eyes are roaming to and fro on the earth. You, have you heard this before? 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. So here's what you have is this um, comparison. You have uh, Satan who's roaming the earth looking for someone to devour, and then you have God whose eyes are roaming the earth looking to give strong support 
to those who, it says blameless, uh, another way to say that, whose uh, devotion to him is wholehearted, who earnestly seek him. So basically, here's how it works. Those who will turn their attention to God, God is looking for you, and as soon as you help you through whatever it is that you're dealing with, he wants to build you up in your faith. Satan wants to destroy you in your sin. That's the comparison that we have. And so we're going to come back to that. But what we have here is Satan looking to weaken and destroy those whose faith is weak. And God says, have you considered Job? And I mean, how many of you, if this were you, you'd say, God, please don't bring my name up when... <laughs> When you're talking to Satan, um, you know, talk about somebody else, but don't talk about me. So God brings him up because God is looking for someone to strengthen, and his eye has caught Job. This is somebody who is wholeheartedly devoted, blameless before God, who loves God, who's following God, and God is looking to strengthen him. And he says, have you considered Job? And Satan is going to pull out his tricks, his tactics, his scheme, to undermine Job, which is to bring pain into his life. Now, one of the things that you have to understand is that Satan is a creature. He has limited power, and even the power that he has is filtered through, and this is a very hard concept for us to understand, okay? But it's still filtered through the, the um, sovereign will of God that God is going to allow Satan to have a certain amount of control and power in this situation, but it's limited. He can only do what God allows him to do. Satan is not equal to God in any way. He's a creature. In fact, um, we just said this, I think I prayed this, uh, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's, that's a direct reference to the power of the Holy Spirit in you compared to the, the power of Satan in the world. So, we don't have to fear this, but this is one of the things that Satan is going to employ in order to try to undermine people in their faith. Pain, suffering, turmoil, tribulation. How does this work? Um, I want to just think biblically for a minute about pain and suffering. Okay, If we can just step back from Job's situation and look at the, the common situation for, for everybody on the earth. Why do people suffer? What brings pain and suffering into people's lives? There are a lot of different categories for how this happens, but let's just start here with sin. Okay, Your personal mistakes, sin, disobedience, rebellion, whatever you want to call it, the things that you do that are against God's will, those things in and of themselves bring pain and suffering, right? We understand that sin causes condemnation. God does not have to condemn you for sin. Sin itself causes its own condemnation. In fact, what the Bible tells us is that God is reserving his uh, judgment for you until the end, that he's not going to condemn you uh, for every sin that you commit as it's committed, that he's given you this space, which is mercy, and to get to the end of your life, you're going to be accountable for it all and responsible for it all, but he doesn't strike you dead for every sin that you commit, even though every sin that you commit is a capital offense. So at the end of your life, you give an account, but within your life, what happens is that sin itself has built-in consequences. So when God told Adam 
uh, not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil or else you would die, there was a built-in consequence into sin. And all sin from that point forward has its own built-in condemnation. So you sin and you have a, a result, a bad result. It's cause and effect relationship. Okay? So for the Christian, for the believer, what tends to happen is as you begin to get your mind thinking according to God's will, because you've put yourself into a relationship with God through faith, and you begin to believe God's word, and you begin to apply his word to your life, and you begin to obey it, and learn, and grow, in wisdom, and understanding, and obedience, and your life begins to change and transform, what happens is, as a believer, you suffer less because of your own sin. You agree? One person agrees. Okay. So here's what happens. Do you have perfect understanding of everything that you should be doing? Anyone? Or are you still learning and growing? Is, are there gaps in your knowledge? Are there gaps in your ability? Are there gaps in your will? Are there gaps in your understanding? Are there, there are gaps in your life between what, what you know God's will is compared to what you're doing? So those gaps are still the area, this, just this one column, okay, this one category of suffering that you're still suffering in certain areas because of ignorance, because of um, rebellion. Sometimes you just do the wrong thing. Anybody ever just do the wrong thing? You're still suffering in that category, even as a Christian, even as a devoted follower of Jesus. There's still some ways that you're suffering because of your own personal sin because it has built-in consequences. Okay, let's move to another column. Um, there are things that uh, you're suffering because of your past. Back before you were a believer, you did some things. You got into some relationships. Maybe you had some habits. Maybe you had some bad things that you put into your body. Maybe there are some things that, that you did that uh, caused you to get a criminal record. Maybe they're, they caused finance, financial problems. You had bankruptcy. You had, there are things that we do in our past, even though we're different, we're forgiven, we've come to the Lord and we've laid those things before Christ and he's forgiven those things, you still have residual pain because of a past choice. We have those things. And God doesn't necessarily take away the result of your past sin. He may take away the ultimate responsibility because you get to go to heaven, and God's going to clear that away, and you're a new creature in Christ, and he sees Christ in you, and that's a wonderful thing, but there are still consequences to your past. Sometimes we're just carrying around the baggage of our past, even though God's forgiven it. And thank God that in your conscience, you can set, set that aside, but in your life, you may have some, some prices to pay, right? So that's another category. Then there are things that happen that are of absolute no fault of your own. You're an innocent bystander, and somebody else sins against you. You're just minding your own business, doing your own thing, and then somebody just comes along, and they assault you, attack you, hurt you, or maybe just accidentally something happens, and it, and it affects you, right? I was uh, parked in a parking spot at Aldi a couple weeks ago, and right squarely within my lines, went inside the shop, came back out. Somebody had just hit my car when they parked next to me. You know, I, didn't, I wasn't moving. I didn't do anything. I didn't deserve it. I wasn't, you know, mean to, I didn't, you know, 
um, offend anybody on the way in. It was just, just an accident. Just somebody misread how far they needed to go, and they hit my car. Um, there's a whole story about that, but I'm not going to get into it. So anyway, that's just a car, and it's easily fixed, whatever. Um, I had a friend who was walking down the street on the sidewalk, talking to another pastor, and uh, there was a car accident that happened right next to him, and the car flipped and hit him physically. It broke his scapula, his, his shoulder blade, and some ribs, and uh, damaged his foot, and there's all kinds of nerve things going on. It took him months to recover from this, just innocently, of no fault of his own, doing his own thing, and something happens, and it just affected him very, very severely. You say, why did God let this happen? I mean, I thought through that whole scenario, like, why did God let this happen? Why did, I mean, and it's kind of hard to, to figure that out sometimes. Would you agree? Because it's not as if, you know, God couldn't have miraculously, you know, moved the, the accident over here or moved him over here or paused here. And he, you don't, you don't know. But there are things that happen that are just not your fault. They happen to you, and they, you suffer for them. Um, part of it has to do with this other category that we live in a fallen world. You understand that the world is not perfect? And do you also understand that you're not perfect in the world? So those two things together can create um, all kinds of problems. One of them is health problems. Anybody ever had a health problem? A cancer, a heart problem, a blood problem, a mental problem. <laughs> you have all these, these effects because your DNA, your genetics are corrupted. And it may be of no fault of your own, maybe of no choice of your own. You didn't do anything. It's just something that happens within your body and you're dealing with that. You live in, in a fallen state and you, it causes a certain amount of suffering. Now, there's another aspect to this, which is um, kind of important for us to, to grasp, which is that as you have these things going on in your life, um, whether it's a physical issue, whether it's a financial issue, whether it's your choice, somebody else's choice, uh, you also have an enemy who is attacking you, who wants to use every situation in your life to cause you to question the goodness of God. Why is this happening to me? And what God says is that all things work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So Satan is using pain and suffering to get you to question God, and God is using your pain and suffering to get you to depend on him. Because, like I said, Jesus told us we're not guaranteed comfort and ease and success and no problems and no pain. We're actually told that we will have suffering in the world. But God is going to use it to grow us to be more like him, to mature us. So what Satan wants to do is to take those things and say, here's your condition, here's your pain and suffering, um, and 
how do you understand your relationship with God based on your position in the world or your, your circumstances? Are they the same? Which means that he is accusing you before God um, in a sense of, do I deserve what I'm experiencing? Is God um, punishing me for something I did way back? I, I can't tell you how many times I've had people who've gone through a painful situation who can't understand what's going on, and they come back to, is God punishing, punishing me for something that I did back years and years ago? Is he holding that against me? Is he kind of vindictively kind of doing this in my life to make me pay for some sin that I committed? And we begin to question. And this is what Satan loves to do because as he begins to steer your thoughts away from Scripture and away from an understanding of, of why we suffer, all these different things of, of why people suffer are pretty clearly uh, the evidence of a fallen creation that God is going to redeem that you and I are fallen creatures living in a fallen world that is evidence that it needs to be taken care of, and God's plan for taking care of it is through Christ in eternity, right? That he wants to bring you into a place of maturity so that you can walk through purposely, purposefully through this life in order to point people to Jesus because your eyes are on heaven. And whatever happens in this world, as good or bad as they may be, the point is to continue to direct our thoughts and our attention back to God, not to let Satan undermine us in getting to that goal. So Job kind of helps us to understand that the first thing that Satan wants to do is undermine you through pain. I don't necessarily think this is his most powerful weapon. It's one of his weapons, but it's not his most powerful weapon. Turn over to 1 Chronicles 21. Satan employs another tactic in a lot of people's lives, which is much more covert. Pain and suffering is pretty obvious. We see it. We understand it. Like We all experience it. And it tends to draw our, our attention back to God because like, man, think, something's wrong. I need a solution, right? And we begin to depend on God for that. First Chronicles 21 says this, says, then Satan stood against Israel and cited David to number Israel. First Chronicles 21.1. And then what he does is, even though Joab is, is against this idea, he continues on with this plan. Why is this a sin? Do you ever wonder some of these things? Like, why is this a problem? But this is a major issue in the life of Israel. And the reason is because David, he is comfortable. Everything is successful. His, his power has increased. He's increased his army. He's increased his level of, of control over the land. He's increased his wealth. And he is beginning to take credit for all of these successes onto himself. Look what I have done. And I want to know how many uh, uh, soldiers I have. And I want to know just how powerful I am. And it wasn't necessarily that he couldn't take a census of his soldiers. But the scripture says that the law requires, if you take a census of your soldiers, you must redeem them. In, order, in other words, you have to pay a price for each and every person that you take a census of. You have to pay a, a certain amount of money for them. 
And that's what they neglected to do. And here's what I think happens. I don't think this is an overt uh, rebellion or disobedience to God. I think it's a neglect, okay? If you go back and you look at another story uh, that uh, David is involved with, remember the time when David's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem? Some of you do, some of you don't. So let me explain it. Um, Jerusalem has been set up as the capital. The Ark of the Covenant was basically a gold box that represented the presence of God. It had the Ten Commandments. It had a jar of manna. It had Aaron's budded staff. Okay, he had a staff that, that bloomed. Uh, it was all in there, and it was held somewhere else. And David wants to bring it to Jerusalem. He wants to make Jerusalem the spiritual capital of his kingdom. And so they begin to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, but they don't do it the right way. They don't know the right way to do it. So they put it on a, a cart, and it's pulled by ox, and they're pulling it along, and it begins to kind of topple, and, and uh, uh, Uzziah, or Uzzah, uh, puts his hand out to steady it, and God strikes him dead on the spot. And they just pull aside, they take it over to this guy's house, Obed-Edom, and they say, you just take care of this for a little while, because we don't know what's going to happen. The, the power of God and the presence of God is so strong that if we do the wrong thing, he's going to destroy everybody. And so they take it aside for a few months. Obed-Edom's uh, household just begins to prosper like crazy. And so David's like, okay, we need to get the ark to Jerusalem. Um, but now we need to go back to the law and see how to do it correctly. The law says that you cannot carry the ark of the covenant on a cart. You have to carry it by poles. It has rings that are in the bottom of the, the ark. There are poles that go through those rings. And the priests have to carry the ark on their shoulders. That's how it's supposed to be transported. They go back and they do that and they take it to Jerusalem. Everything's wonderful, right? But by neglect, they had done what was unlawful. And I think that what happens in 1 Chronicles 21 is that David had neglected to understand or to research or to apply the law. And so out of pride, he just does what he wants to do. Here's, here's the moral of the story. When we are successful, when we are affluent, when we are um, comfortable, when we are at peace, when, when all is well in our worlds, this is the time that pride has the ability to undermine our walk with God and we neglect to spend time with the Lord. Because what we begin to think I don't know. I mean, I, I think this is so common that for most people, they, it's like hard to even understand. When you are comfortable, you stop pursuing God as strongly as you did when you were uncomfortable. Because your sense of need, it just doesn't seem to be there. And what happens for people who are affluent, which is a lot of us, is that we begin to drift in our relationship with God. And Satan doesn't have to attack you overtly. He doesn't have to try to get at you. All he has to do is kind of keep you asleep. And I, I'm doing well, and look what I've done, and look what I've accomplished, and I have this much money, and I have these kind of credentials, and my career's going well, and everything seems to be fine. And so we're just kind of drifting along. And the further we drift, the farther away we get from God, and we don't even realize how much pain we're, we're really setting ourselves up for. 
Because in this drift, here's what we see in Scripture. God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. We are actually, as we let Satan continue to put us to sleep and drift away from the Lord, we have actually positioned ourselves to be in opposition to God in pride. And we have no idea that this is even happening. Because our world seems good. This is the consistent biblical problem that we see all through the stories of the Bible, is that people had this idea that pain and suffering meant that you were in a wrong relationship with God. Success and affluence meant that you were in a right relationship with God. And the reality is, your pain and suffering or your affluence may have nothing to do with where your spiritual condition Does that blow your mind? Here's what God wants to tell you versus what Satan, Satan would love to keep your attention on your circumstance. God wants you to take your attention off of your circumstance, keep it on him, and let him be God no matter what is going on in your life. God wants to tell you that your relationship with him should be first, foremost, and primary, no matter what. No matter if things are good, no matter if things are difficult, no matter if you're succeeding or, or you're failing or you feel like you're failing, whatever guilt that you have, whatever pride that you have in, and how you've done well with your life, keep your attention on the Lord. And what's going to happen is that you're going to decrease the ability of Satan to get in and cause you a, a great amount of difficulty and pain. The Bible says that we need to make sure that we don't give Satan a foothold. Pain or success aren't, re aren't really the foothold. It's the attention that you take away from God and put on your situation that is the foothold. And he gets in there, and he begins to stir up questions and problems and doubts and confusion and what if and all those different things, and now I can't figure out my life because why? I'm not focused on God. I'm focused on my situation. And so he says to us, his eyes, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him, who earnestly seek him. He wants a moment. He, he simply is asking for a moment when you would just say, God, I need you. Turn your eyes to him, and he's going to meet you there. The Bible says it this way, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. It says, ask, seek, and knock, and the door will be opened, right? That he's not looking for you to be perfect. He's not looking for you to get it all figured out and all right. He's just saying, give me your attention, and I'll pay attention. Just meet me here. Just meet me halfway. Just turn your eyes to me. And so here's, here's the whole conclusion, okay? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. All this is telling us is one particular thing. Do you have an appointment with God on a daily basis? Do you keep that appointment? Do you practically and intentionally set aside a time? And I don't, it may be of 15 minutes, it may be an hour, I don't know what your time is, but 
You set aside a time that you're going to go and you're going to meet with God. I'm going to talk to God, and he's going to talk to me, and I'm going to listen to him. I want to lay out my life. I want to get his insight. I want to get his will. I want to begin to just have a relationship. We are so lost in religion that we forget that the whole point is to bring us into this time. This We call it quiet time. We call it devotions. You call it whatever you want. But it's a time when you have actually positioned your life in front of God and said, God, I want to hear from you. And everything significant that's going to happen in your life spiritually is going to happen in that moment. This may be, may be a, a moment that kind of motivates you to that, but this is not the significant moment, okay? I mean, I'm just going to tell you, uh, as much as we love coming together and worshiping, and, it's, and God can do powerful things when his people are gathered together, and, and I love that, and I'm all for that, obviously. This is just a microcosm of what God wants to do when you get alone with him and have time with him and submit your heart to him and allow him to speak to you one-on-one -on -one in a personal relationship. You cannot give that away for this. If this is the only thing that you're doing in your relationship with God, I'm going to tell you, this is not enough. In fact, this may almost be like a narcotic to you, thinking that because I went to church, I'm right with God, or I, I, God owes me something, or I've given something to him. And I'm telling you, this is not it. This is, this is to encourage you to get to that other point, which is to have a relationship with him on a one-on-one -on -one basis. That's where your life changes. And what's terrifying to me is that there are too many people that think that because I went to church that all is well in my spiritual life and they're not meeting with God and not only is the right thing not happening, but they're actually being lied to or Satan is using it to get at you. He is undermining the very thing that God created you to have, which is a relationship with himself. It's both, okay? Don't hear me tell you don't go to church. I'm telling you that church is the catalyst for your relationship with God. Amen? So before you leave, as we're praying, think about this question, do I have a time? Do I have an appointment with God? Do I keep that appointment? Will I keep that appointment? Will I make sure that I'm spending a significant moment with the Lord on a daily basis, let him do his work? If, if you haven't had that in the past, it's, it's okay. I mean, it's not okay, but it's okay because you can start now. But I'm telling you, that's where you need to be. Let's pause and pray. Father, my, my prayer is that you have opened our eyes to your will, made us aware of, of the attack of the enemy, that we might realize, probably not for the first time, but maybe for some, that we need a relationship with you. You've invited us to have a relationship through your son Jesus, Lord. It's, it's a uh, 
powerful, life-transforming invitation that by grace we're saved through faith, Lord, to trust in Jesus, to be made new creatures in Christ, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. All these promises, Lord, are just handed to us on a silver platter where they're offered to us. They're, I mean, in some ways, I feel like sometimes you're just almost begging us to just receive your wonderful gift. And whether it's confusion because of pain or, or um, that we're prideful and we, we neglect it, I don't, I don't always know, but Lord, help us to turn our eyes back to you. Keep our eyes on you. Make sure that our relationship with you is first and foremost, front and center. It's where we have our hearts and our attention. Um, it's what we want. It's what we need, and we know it. And Lord, we'll be better worshipers because of it. We'll, we'll enjoy church more. Um, we'll sing louder. We'll have a greater fellowship with each other um, as a result of that. But Lord, help us not to neglect our time with you. It's not a legalism. It's, it's not a ritual. Lord, it is a relationship that you desire and we need. And it opens our eyes to the attacks and the lies of our enemy. And it keeps us on your path. And so, Lord, I'm, I'm praying right now, those who are praying along with me, um, give us a, an awareness. Help us to make a commitment. Come up with a plan to meet with you. And we thank you for the blessing that's going to result from that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to invite you um, to respond to the Lord. And some, some of you maybe are feeling uh, God's pull. And, and listen, this is the whole point. It is not a heavy-handed guilt trip. It is a loving pull of God and an invitation from God to your heart to have a, a relationship with him. He's inviting you to know him. He's inviting you to dwell in his presence. Um, and if you're feeling that this morning, and this may be a, a moment where you say, I'm going to confirm that, that conviction by coming to the altar and saying yes to the Lord, I'm going to make a commitment to spend time with him on a daily basis. And I'm going to trust that he's going to use that to do something powerful in my life. Amen? Let's stand and sing.